You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Jennifer Lal is founder and president of the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network. She has 25 years of experience as a pediatric critical care nurse, hospital administrator, and senior level nursing manager. And more recently, she's also become a successful filmmaker. In 2010, she made her writing, producing, and directing debut with the documentary film Exploitation, which was awarded Best Documentary by the California Independent Film Festival and has sold in more than 30 countries. She's also director, executive producer, and co-writer of Anonymous Father's Day, a 2011 documentary exploring the stories of men and women who were created by anonymous sperm donations. In 2014, she completed three films on the ethics of third-party reproduction, also known as surrogacy, with a trilogy called Breeders, a Subclass of Women. And in 2015, she released a documentary short called Maggie's Story, which follows one woman's egg donation journey. Her next feature film, Big Fertility, was released in the fall of 2018. Of course, we were particularly interested in Jennifer's films that focus on gender medicine. Transmission, What's the Rush to Reassign Gender, was released in June of 2021. And her forthcoming film, The Detransition Diaries, Saving Our Sisters, is set to release this fall in 2022. In our discussion today, Jennifer puts forward her theories about what she calls a superhighway that confidently shuttles people towards risky medical interventions. This happens, according to Jennifer, both in the realm of fertility and gender. Fertility is an area that Stella and I know very little about, so it was interesting to hear Jennifer share her experiences as a nurse and as a filmmaker who's obviously followed this topic very closely. She holds some really strong but thought-provoking views on the medicalization of fertility that surely some people will find controversial. Ultimately, though, Jennifer's biggest concern is that any patient, whether they're pursuing interventions in fertility or gender medicine, should be fully informed about the risks involved and the outcomes. She also highlights that sometimes a lack of evidence underlies the model of informed consent. She poses the question, how can you consent to something if we have very little or no evidence about it? So we explored the parallels that Jennifer's observed in these two areas of medicine, both incidentally with really serious ethical considerations around fertility and reproduction. We highly encourage you to check out both of the films she's made on gender, uh, which we also talk extensively about in this discussion. So here is our conversation with Jennifer Lal. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Stella. I'm, I'm so happy that we are here talking with our guest, Jennifer Lal. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm so excited. Um, well, Jennifer, you know, you've been really focused on, um, you were, you were a nurse, you're of course a filmmaker, and you've made a lot of films that have to do with different aspects related to kind of reproduction, reproductive health, and then of course, most recently, um, transition medicine and detransition. But it's, I think your story starts further back when you were practicing as a nurse and starting to observe some ethical dilemmas there. So I'm, I'm wondering if maybe we can start back then, like maybe how did you get into nursing? What drew you into it? And then what did you start to notice while you were working in the field? Yeah, well, um, what got, well, I actually was quite sick as a child mm. and I for one year spent one year in the hospital, like for an entire year when I was 10 years old, I lived in the hospital and the nurses were just great. They kind of put me to work. <laughs> You know, I got to pass out the snacks at night and bring around the snack cart to all the other kids in the, in the children's ward. And I got to learn about who had to be on a sugar-free diet because they were diabetic and who couldn't have fat because, you know, and, you know, so I, I just, I had such a great, believe it or not, I had a really great experience, even though I hated to be in the hospital and I wanted to go home. Um, I, you know, and I thought that just got me really interested in, in hospital nursing, 
Um, I had a, a, a blood dis- disease. Um, I don't get into the gory details, but I actually wanted to be a medical physician and be a hematologist because of my own personal. But then I, once I got into um, college and I realized the commitment for medical school, <laughs> financial and time-wise, I, I became quite, because I am very practical. Um, and I just thought, well, I could be very happy you know, pursuing a nursing career. And so most of my clinical nursing was in pediatrics, which is not really kind of funny considering I was a pediatric patient. Um, And it was more focused on pediatric critical care. So I was a peds ICU nurse at the University of California, San Francisco, at University of California, Los Angeles. I kind of closed out my uh, clinical career at Children's Hospital in Oakland, California, where I was I moved into senior level hospital management administration. Um, but if anybody who's worked in hospitals as a nurse knows, even if you're a manager, you're still doing clinical practice because you have to relieve people for breaks. And if they're short staffing, you have to step in. And um, and because I was always attached to university hospitals, you know, we were always pushing the envelope. You know, we were the places that were, you know, doing the clinical trials, um, trying out the new procedures. I worked with the doctor in San Francisco who did the first um, surgery where he took the baby out of the mother's womb and repaired the defect and then put the baby back in the womb so that the when the baby was born, it was born healthy. Otherwise, that baby probably wouldn't have had a chance of surviving. Um, so, you know, and those were cool things. I'm all for like those kind of really amazing life-saving kind of interventions. So I'm not anti-technology. But I also, um, because in pediatrics, you know, you certainly know what the work that you women do. You're dealing a lot with parents and parents having to make decisions and parents having to make decisions often on the fly, like with very short notice. And the burden of knowing that these are people, you know, I will see this child and then they will go on and I'll never see them again. But these parents have to live with whatever decisions they make for the rest of their life. So it was really a burden that I had to make sure that parents were really making the best possible decisions with as much information as they could have and understand. Um, And so we, you know, I went back to graduate school and I pursued a graduate degree in, in what is now called bioethics. In the olden days, we had medical ethics. But then, you know, medicine got too paternalistic and the doctor knows best. And so we moved into the space of bioethics, where if you've been on um, ethics committees, which I've spent a lot of time on ethics committees, it's more of a conversation. You have lawyers in the room, you have hospital administrators, you have social workers, you know, you have, of course, family members. Um, and so ethical decisions sort of move from the doctor to saying what we're going to do and what we're not going to do to, you know, ethics by committee which can be very good, but it can be very bad depending on who's on the committee and what the values of who's on the committee is. So I pursued, you know, bioethics and got my master's. And when I was in graduate school, I was planning just to go back to clinical nursing, maybe go into teaching um, in, in nursing universities at nursing schools. But I just got this bug of all these new stuff that was coming down the pike with, as it relates to biotechnology, you know, gene editing, you know, m- making and designing life in the laboratory, um, cloning, you know, cloning was the big debate at the time when I was in graduate school. Dolly, the sheep had just been born, which was a sheep that was cloned and all the ethics around should we, what would happen? You know, Bill Joy, who was like the lead scientist at Sun Microsystems in the secret Silicon Valley at the time, wrote a very profound wired magazine essay called, I think, don't forgive me, Bill Joy, uh, Why the Future Doesn't Need Us Anymore, I think was the title of the essay in Wired. And it was sort of alarming the bells around artificial intelligence, robotics, nanotechnology, and being able to make tiny, tiny little super smart machines that we couldn't even see, but were so smart they could self-replicate. You know, so I just got, like, my my world just blew up. And so I founded the organization I now run, the Center for Bioethics and Culture, and, um, you know, we've sort of stayed in, as you say, the space of reproductive technology, but we can talk more about how I shifted into the trans stuff. You know, if you want to talk about that, I'll let you, it's your show. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm very, very interested in this. So when you say you, you got the bug, you started noticing these things, were you kind of initially like cheerleaders for these types of technologies? Or were you from the beginning a bit skeptical or like, t- tell us 
What did you What did you get when you got the bug? What What was that yeah. bug? Yeah. Well, I um, again back to my patient advocacy and my my educate. You know, pa- pediatric people are always educating people. We're educating parents how to take care of the kid when the kid goes home, how to give the insulin, how to mix medication. You know, education, education. And I just thought, you know, these are these are profound, you know, future of civilization things. And shouldn't the public be educated because the public are stakeholders, not just, you know, Silicon Valley, not just, you know, big pharma, Um, you know. So my my urgency was to quickly how can I make these really complex things? You know, they're doing what to children? You know, they're doing what in the laboratory? You know, how to how to sort of not not dumb it down. That just seems kind of like negative. But you know, how to make this these big things accessible to just regular old people and to make them interested, excited, alarmed, whatever. People are have different reactions to this kind of stuff. But really to to shape, shape how we how we introduce and accept new things into our worlds you know we now like for i use this as an example we now have over a million frozen human embryos in the united states alone through assisted reproduction you know that's kind of an unintended consequence you know we've never addressed it legislatively we've never addressed it medically um like some other kind like germany it's illegal under federal law in germany to freeze a human embryo um, and I think that's a little bit of they still remember their their past, you know, their medical abuse past, you know. What is the reason given for that? Well, because most assisted reproductive technology cycles fail. It's a high failure rate. So people who enter into the assisted reproductive space, either gay couples trying to have a baby or infertile couples or Hollywood people who don't want to bother with pregnancy, there's many reasons. We know that this is very expensive technology with a high failure rate. So big medicine, big fertility, I call it big fertility, makes a lot of embryos because it's a lot of money and there's a high failure rate. And you don't want to keep going back and taking eggs out of your body and sperm. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's onerous, it's expensive, it's risky. Um, so we just make a lot. You know, it's not unusual for somebody to have, you know, 20 20 embryos frozen because they'll try one and the pregnancy won't succeed. They'll try another. They'll they'll thaw some and they don't, a lot of them, they don't survive once they're thawed, you know? So we just make a lot. Quality control. I mean, I'm really interested in this and I know this isn't directly related to gender transition, but I feel like this leads in. So can you just help me understand? I'm not someone who knows much about the industry of fertility or freezing embryos or anything like that. Just help me understand what exactly does that mean? How does that work? How do people do this? And why do you think it's such a big industry? I mean, I also want to ask about the bioethics of this from your perspective, but like just help me and other listeners who are not familiar with these processes. What is this? What are we talking about? Yeah. Um, well, there's, there's many layers and some of it does really line up with what we're seeing in the gender affirming, affirming medical model. Um, you know, in the rush to do that, we're very impatient. We're very impatient people. I don't, I can't speak to the people in your country, Sella, but in the America and we're really impatient. We're, we're learning to be impatient from you. we want quick fixes and if we have money we want those fixes to be quick immediate um and we we found a workaround so i fertility medicine's a workaround we you know we've stopped looking at why people are having trouble with conceiving you know and there's many reasons why couples like when and i say couples i'm speaking of in particular heterosexual couples who should naturally be able to conceive you know we have obesity we have you know environmental toxins and pollutants we smoke we drink too much we wait too long you know we just sort of you know we we don't take care of our fertile bodies and i always remind people that you know our fertility is really fragile you know we're not we're not rabbits you know, and it's really it's truly amazing when, you know, a baby is born because there's a million things that go wrong to make that not happen. Um, and once we had the first test tube baby born, which was the famous Louise Brown born in the United Kingdom some 40 years ago now, um, we found a workaround. 
right? And we went, oh, well, when people, and so now it's not uncommon for me to talk to couples who, you know, they're trying to get pregnant for maybe two or three months and they're rushed off to see the fertility doctor. And three months is not a long time to try to conceive, but in our minds, you know, the first thing out of the doctor's mouth, your regular, you know, physician is go see the specialist. And the specialist is happy to have you on, I call it the super highway of fertility medicine, because they're going to make a lot of money off of you. Um, so that's a little bit of what we're, and we're seeing that with the shifts in gender affirming care for children. We're impatient. We don't want to watch and wait. We don't want to pump the brakes. We want to quickly send them to the gender affirming clinic and we'll fix that problem. Like tomorrow, we'll get that kid on puberty blockers and we'll get them on the path to, you know, surgeries and blah, 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 blah. Um, and I've seen that in the women that I introduced, um, I interviewed in the movie that's coming out, which we can talk about in a bit, how quickly they were put on, how easy it was for them to get powerful cross-sex hormones. So I think that's a lot of it is just this impatience, this workaround. Why are we no longer spending any of our resources? We already know that women's medical health gets this much of the research dollars, compared to other, you know, we're always, you know, clamoring, why haven't we figured out breast cancer? Why haven't we found cures and treatments for things that women have been having for years and dying of? So we don't spend a lot of money, but when we have this really profit motive fix, we just rush everybody there. <laughs> no, it's brilliant. It's, it's, it's shocking when it's said so straight that this you. I'm a real drag at cocktail parties. <laughs> so am I. I'm honestly the worst. I, it's so hard to make new friends. <laughs> I get it. But you you put it as a, from what I could read, is th- this is very much a money-driven, profit-making machine. While I would have thought this was a very scientific, what can we do next, curiosity-driven, that is making money, but perhaps it's 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 it's... And now I'm thinking about it. Maybe the scientists are, are supported to do the money making. What can we do next kind of initiatives? Yeah. And there's other initiatives which might make them as much money, such as, I don't know, curing different things that might make them as much money that maybe don't get supported. And that's why it's we're driven by one and driven by the other. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, if you if you are like me and you've read, you're not like me. So you probably haven't read like Lisa Mundy, who's a journalist, wrote for Mother Jones. You know, she wrote a great book called Everything Conceivable. Deborah Sparr, who used to be the head of Harvard, you know, wrote a, a book about the baby machine. Gina Correa, a great early feminist, wrote a book called The Mother Machine. Um, you know, where women were just being, we were just being treated as guinea pigs by fertility doctors who were, you know, you hear all the stories about creepy fertility doctors inseminating their patients with their own sperm. These women never, I mean, Netflix has had a great film that came out, I think last month or two months ago called Our Father, this fertility doctor in Indiana who was inseminating all of his patients and never, ever told them, you know, so there's, um, you know, I think it was in Mundy's book, she quotes a very prominent fertility doctor in San Francisco who basically said, you know, fertility medicine, um, it's a paraphrase, but it's basically we're, they're throwing spaghetti on the wall and seeing what sticks. You know, we'll put these women on all these drugs and we'll see if this will help them. We'll, we'll do all this kind of you know, intervention, see if that will help them. And you could say the same thing about what they're doing to children. You know, they're just throwing stuff at kids. They don't know what the hell they're doing. They don't know if this is harmful. They don't, they don't, they have no interest in proving that it's safe and doing studies. And, and, you know, we've, you know, I'm in the backyard of Dr. Turbin out here at Stanford. You know, we've seen what he's able to get published and sort of the the mockery that's being made of peer reviewed science in quotes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm, I'm sounding really cynical and bitter and I'm really not, but I do get kind of a little bit miffed. Um, um, I, I'm noticing that there's kind of different types of characters who we find when we start to notice that there's maybe some sort of medically uh, or ethically questionable medical stuff going on. Like, I think there are the kind of um, doctors who they're very arrogant. They believe they're pioneers. They think there's no means that would uh, prevent them from doing this like incredible medicine. They have a bit of a God complex. Like I think I know those clinicians and I studied this with lobotomy. We've looked at this with repressed memories. Like there, there, there is this character. 
And then at least I can say with gender medicine, because that's the world I know best, there's like an army of clinicians, a lot of whom are women, who seem to be on the surface motivated by a great deal of compassion and attempting to eliminate, eradicate, reduce suffering. And I don't know much about fertility medicine, but I'm very curious about whether there's a similar pattern there. Like, it doesn't have to be women, but like, you know, OBGYNs or fertility doctors who really think, you know, rather than a couple struggling or being disappointed with their fertility difficulties, we're just going to streamline them towards their goal. We're going to give them what they're looking for very quickly. Like, do, do you think that there's a version of that too happening in that world? I don't know. Cause I mean, I see these creepy women that are doing mastectomies on children that are on their TikTok, you know? So I, I see women, you know, the, I, one of my first early films was called exploitation and I interviewed um, several women who saw ads in their university papers to sell their eggs, make, you know, a family, make dreams come true, be an angel, blah, 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 you know, who were seriously harmed. And one of the young women in that film, the, per, the doctor who retrieved her eggs was a very prominent fertility doctor in the San Francisco Bay Area. And we showed up at a hearing to testify in Arizona State, and that physician was there. And you know she knew that woman was her patient, <laughs> You know, and she never even let on as she testified against us in this hearing instead of going. I mean, I would have been ashamed. I couldn't show up in a Senate hearing room to testify and have this young woman who walked in. And this young woman literally almost died in in the hospital after having her eggs, you know, removed from her body because they'd nicked an artery and it went undiagnosed for hours while she laid in the recovery room. She was a medical student, this young woman. So she knew something was wrong. And they kept saying, you, it's time for you to get back to the airport and catch your plane, your plane home. And she said, I can't even stand up and walk and I'm in so much pain. And then they found out when they had to rush her back for emergency surgery that she'd been bleeding in her abdomen for, for six hours. And they were trying to get her on a plane to get her home. And that physician who removed her eggs was the one that was in the hearing room. And you can't tell me that she walked in, this was several years later, and did not recognize this young woman as one of her patients that almost died. And so I don't know. I don't. And you know, when you look at reproductive medicine, it's always called, it's referred to often as the Wild West. Reproductive medicine is the Wild West. And that's why it's common that, you know, the reproductive doctors are cowboys. You know, it's, it's sort of that, you know, God complex, you know, here we come to save the day. We're riding in on our horse with guns a blazing and we're going to save everybody, <laughs> you know? So there is a little bit, I see it in women as, as much as men. That's really interesting. So, so you're focused on these kind of fertility issues and then, and you made this movie exploitation. Then when did the gender thing come across your radar? Yeah. Well, you know, I've certainly, I've been following this issue for quite some time, but as an organization, we didn't make a decision to get involved in it yet because we were sort of heavily focused on assisted reproduction, the infertility debate, what we call third-party conception, surrogacy, egg and sperm donation, um, you know, gene editing, designer babies, you know, you think of all the, like the great movies like Gattaca, (laughs) you know, you can have the baby of your dreams. And then, I became very aware that they were offering um, minors before their puberty blocking or before they were put on cross-sex, wrong-sex hormones, they were offering fertility preservation. And I thought, wow, they really do want patients for life. You know, the endocrinologists want patients for life. The fertility doctors want patients for life. And, and again, back to my, my years of pediatric nursing, I thought, well, there's no way in hell that these young kids can even consent to, yeah, I think maybe 20 years from now I'll want children. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, a 12-year-old might even say, what's a sperm? What's an egg? You know, let alone, sure, let's freeze them and save them. You know, and I just thought, oh, what the hell? And then, of course, it also happened with men having babies, and then trans men and trans women having babies. And then there was a study that came out a little over a year ago that said they interviewed a bunch of um, trans women who wanted uterine transplants. And, you know, and uterine transplants is part of our work, you know, whether it be 
with artificial wombs or synthetic wombs or transplants from one woman into another's body. So our worlds has kind of collided. Um, and, and like I said to you guys earlier, before we started recording, you know, I was in clinical nursing at an era where we were doing the watchful waiting and we were saying there's really no rush. You know, once we can find out if there's any underlying, you know, genetic thing that's going on here, or real, real endocrine kind of a problem, there's really no rush to do anything medically to a lot of these children and they can just be, you know, left, left to be. So are you saying that you, you worked directly in childhood gender medicine at any point, or you're just saying you were aware that that was the standard protocol at that time? Yeah, that okay. was, you know, because I was in clinical nursing in, and that was before the gender, you know, clinics or even a thing, you know, we didn't have a gender clinic at Children's Hospital in Oakland or, or UC, the UCs, you know, that was pre that. Um, but we would occasionally, you know, get children that were in the hospital for other things that required them to be hospitalized. You know, we did see kids, you know, of course, that were born with, gen, you know, ambiguous genitalia, you know, the Kleinfeld, the, the, you know, Turner syndrome. So we would see those kids because they were just newborns and we would have to diagnose them to find out what they were. But even in those cases, it was, well, we really don't need to assign anything yet because this child might, as they, as they grow up, it might become more evident how they're oriented um, and, you know, are they going to be more feminine or are they? So I was always mindful of that. If anything, what we saw, um, it, again, because it was the hospital setting, we saw a lot of girls that were there for anorexia, um, cutting, you know, they were just doing kind of harmful things that require them to be hospitalized, which of course we're seeing that now with this, you know, this burgeoning of young girls that you know they have histories of depression and anxiety eating disorders cutting self-harm um what made you um come towards the film and the detransition world because at this stage you're at the very much the watching young girls yeah well i i love making movies i found that out you know I'm not a train. I didn't go to film school. I, people say, yeah. how did you learn to make movies? I go, well, I, wa- I watched some on TV. <laughs> Isn't that how you learn? I mean, how did you learn things in the hospital? You know, they say you have to start an IV here. This is how you do it. <laughs> Put a tourniquet on, you poke the needle in the vein. <laughs> um, people don't read. I know. Right. People don't read. Right. You see, you open up your inbox and it will say at the very beginning, three minute read time. Like, please read this. It will only cost you three minutes of your life. Uh, And I had a a book manuscript I was shopping around to get published. And, you know, it's this hard to get people. We actually just signed a book deal yesterday for the detransition diaries. Publisher wants us to turn the movie into a book. So it will be a book. But overwhelmingly, we could get people to watch films. And I was a pediatric nurse, so I was interested in this issue of transing of children. Um, my partner, uh, who works with me, who made both of these films with me, um, is a labor and delivery nurse. So we're two nurses. We're two women. We're, we're both moms. And we, had, you know, and we just thought, well, damn it, we're going to make another movie. And then when Transmission came out, it was clear that the audiences really resonated with the D-Trans stories. And when we saw what happened with Grace on 60 Minutes and how the outrage and the backlash were, how dare you include their voices? And, well, they just weren't really trans. That's why they did this. Or, you know, there's all that kind of stuff. We thought, oh, there's something that they don't want told. Um, so that's, those are the stories we want to tell, the ones that, you know, they're trying to scare you out of telling, want, the ones they're trying to discount. And people will watch, you know, Sasha's seen the early rough cut of the film, and you're welcome to see it too, Stella, if you want, it can send you the link. But I think people will just really connect with these young women. They're, they're beautiful, they're poised, they're articulate, they're well-spoken, they don't come across as bitter or angry, they're not blaming anybody. You know, they see what went wrong and where things should have been barriers saying stop or don't do this, but there's they don't have any axe to grind. So I think the audiences will really connect with these young women and say, you guys, you guys are on to something here. Yeah, and they're they're very relatable. So you're talking about the detransition diaries, the three women that you followed there. They're very relatable, and I think they reflect, I mean, I, I often say any would-be gay kid is now being transed, but not all the trans kids are gay. 
right? So I think these three young women reflect a contemporary narrative that we're starting to wrap our minds around, which is really different from like, I had gender dysphoria since I was three. I was always an extreme tomboy. I, you know, that's not that's not the stories of these kind of ROGD girls. So I think that was really nice. But to, I want to go back to, to transmission. You know, when you made that film called, you know, What's the Rush to Reassign Gender? I'm curious about... Um, did you learn anything surprising in the process of making that film? How was it received? Uh, I'm just really interested in that because that was a really important documentary for just tracking the, the medical aspect of this and the kind of manipulation that we see in some of these gender clinics towards parents and, you know, chronicling also just what the affirmative clinicians say. I mean, it speaks for itself to hear them talk about uh, you know, the kid is in the driver's seat and the parents are in the back seat. I remember that moment. I mean, just, just talk a little bit about that film because it was really something. Well, yes, I learned a ton. You know, I did interview Michelle Forcier in that film, who was in Matt Walsh's, you know, can you, what, what is a woman? Um, and uh, I have to be careful because I don't want to say my, say anything I'm going to get in trouble for because it was a really, um, interesting interview and there was a lot of control over what could be used versus what ended up on the cutting room floor. But when I was doing that interview, I on the inside was going, holy hell, what has happened to pediatric medicine? Because, because I had worked with pediatricians for decades and I'm hearing the batshit crazy stuff coming out of the mouth. Can I say that on your show? Batshit crazy stuff. And I'm just going, we are in trouble. Um, so, so that was kind of a real, like, oh my goodness. Um, I had never met, spoken to, interacted with detransitioners. So we had two in the film, Hachi being one, and then another young woman who was anonymous and had her face and her name changed for her own privacy. Um, so that I learned a lot from just hearing about people who were told this will fix everything and to find out it didn't fix anything. And Hachi's just great. I mean, he's just, I mean, he's crazy smart. Um, so kind and gentle. So behind the scenes, he was happy to find me, you know, articles, studies, things that, you know, just very, very helpful. I just, I just loved, I loved him. I fell in love with him. Um, so, you know, I learned that. We learned some interesting things because we hired a social media person to do marketing for the film after. And we were expecting to, because it, it went immediately onto YouTube for free viewing. And that was because the person who funded it just wanted it to be given away for free. So we, uh, on purpose, we had it on other um, platforms because we were expecting it to be canceled. We were expecting to lose our whole YouTube channel and just have YouTube shut us down, which they never have. But they've never once allowed us to monetize the film. So it's been viewed by over 100,000 people. And we've made $13 off the film on YouTube because they won't let us monetize it because it's against their community guidelines. Um, and their advertisers would not want their ads to be splashed up on this horrible, you know, hateful kind of movie. So, um, but we did put it on Vimeo. We put it up on Rumble. We had our whole YouTube channel backed up just in case they just shut us down. So we learned that kind of stuff, which I'd never had to handle, deal with that in any of the films that I'd made in the past, because there wasn't this big, you know, we're just going to, you know, have, people were telling me I should have security at my house and I should, you know, put cameras everywhere because <laughs> they're going to come after you. So, so, you know, those are things that we learned in, in the making of that film was just how the political climate is is ugly. But I think really was just what has happened to medicine was my big take home. What is your running theory about what has happened to medicine? Because you've certainly studied it from the inside out. And, you know, like, you know, I work in Genspect and we've been following the AAP story and they, it just seems so inappropriate and they just seem so kind of zealously committed to one narrow affirmative only model for gender dysphoric children to the point of silencing anybody who, who just wants to ask questions and seek reviews. See, yeah. That's all they're asking for. That's the kind of a radical kind of 
question that needs to be suppressed. What do you, what's your working theory of what, when you keep, because you keep on coming back to and what is going on and what is going on? What is your working theory that has, how has it lost its way so badly? Yeah, well, I don't, I don't have like data to prove what I, my theories are, um, but I just have, you know, years of observation. You know, we really shifted, um, I'm going to, I'm going to sound like, you know, the good old days were so wonderful. (laughs) Can we go back to the good old days? But, you know, I remember as a young nurse working with really, truly amazing physicians. You know, they would come into a room to examine a patient. They would touch the patient. They would talk to the patient. You know, there was this real holistic, you know, bedside manner. Um, And I still remember, you know, because I worked at teaching hospitals, so the residents would come in in the morning, they would do rounds with the attending physician, you know, the attending physician is the seasoned, you know, years of experience, you know, mentor. And, you know, this one, he was a pediatric thoracic surgeon, he did all the heart surgery at, at UC San Francisco, and he was amazing and these these interns would rush and, and you know they haven't slept all night they're they're dog ass tired residents they're working around the clock you know they're grinding it out and they they have their head down and they just rattle off the chart well the x-ray shows this and the the blood work shows this and and physical therapy says this and he would stop and he goes have you touched this patient today have you felt their skin are they sweaty are they cold what color is their skin you know just and he would just wake them up because but but we become so data driven right we're, we're data, I'm a data junkie, you know, I'm always on my phone, you know, how, you know, who, who tweeted this and has somebody liked my, and you know, we're just, we're data driven. So I think that was a shift. We stopped requiring ethics to be taught in medical school. You know, ethics is Wait, now an elective. You, you don't have you don't to have learn to. ethics through, in medical school? You can get through medical school without having to take any ethics class. Really? And, 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 you know, back to the committee, the decision by committee, who's teaching the ethics class? Sometimes maybe it's probably a good idea that these students are forced to take ethics because the people teaching ethics are going to be, you know, pro, pro-transing of children ethics or, you know, pro things that we, we don't really think are good and valuable and, and, and helpful to patients. So part of me says, well, is that really bad given the state of medicine right now? Um, and medicine has really shifted to service. When I left, I remember my last job in, in nursing before I stopped nursing altogether. And I would, I would quiz all the incoming interns. You know, they come in at the beginning of a new year and you're going to be working with them for that year. And when they're in that, that year of their internship. And I would say to them, if you have a patient that comes in and they've done their Google search and they have, you know, they say, doctor, I have this and I want you to order a CAT scan. And I think I need to be put on this medication. Um, what would you say to that patient? And it was overwhelming. They, they would just say, well, I would just do what my patient wants me to do. You know, so it became more of, I'm just here to provide services. You just come in. Is that the smoking gun? Is it that patients have become customers? That uh, do, do all roads lead to that, really? When we when I left clinical nursing, we no longer had patients. We had clients and we had customers. And we were service providers. We were no longer healthcare professionals. We were service providers. We have insurance providers. We have service providers. We have customers. We have clients. That's where we, like, if we reverted to patients as opposed to clients and customers, um, do you think medicine would be in a better you know, w- would that be the thing that would bring us back to a more uh, helpful model as opposed to a money-driven model? Yeah, I, I think it would be helpful. I don't know if it would solve everything, again, because we don't have a, 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 we don't have a unified, agreed-upon ethical framework. You know, you have your ethics, I have my, I think this is right, you have this. is. You know, we, we look at what's happened to our professional societies like the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Pediatric Endocrine Society, where top down they're saying things that we, we categorically disagree with as far as the treatment when you think about, you know, gender dysphoria and children. Um, so I don't think just all of a sudden seeing them as patients will solve all that when we don't have a common shared ethical value, because I think we've lost that too. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. 
Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organisation dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. When you guys, I mean, you're talking about this, and I'm thinking about two things. One, I think what you said, Jennifer, really resonates with me, that there's a competing set of values And some of them have been kind of discarded or put into the background and others are at the forefront. So right now it's like client or sorry, patient autonomy is the number one ethical value. Whereas we're missing some of these important values that are, we have to balance. And, and I'm, I'm also just thinking about like, you know, all the parents that I've met, right. Who have been to doctors and had their concerns totally dismissed in an ironic way, I mean, that is the, the paternalistic physician yeah. saying, I know best what your child needs. Actually, you're not my client at all. I'm not going to listen to any of your concerns. So like how it's hard to figure out how to do this, because even when the doctor is trying to meet the needs of the child patient, for example, they inadvertently ignore completely the parent patient who is an important part of that child's care. So it's just like so messy. It really is. And then we look at just how much parental authority is being undermined. So again, my past experience was we would move mountains in order to let parents do things for or not do things for their child that we were not in agreement with. So we would have Jehovah Witness children in the hospital that needed a blood transfusion. But because it's against the Jehovah Witness religion to transfuse blood, we would, you know, we would say, okay, well, we're going to give this child, you know, volume through other kinds of liquids, saline or, or, you know, some other kind of, to try to, to try to honor, um, you know, we would have, Roma families that would be admitted to the hospital. And when you have a child of that, that background admitted to the hospital, you have 75 people that come with that child. Um, and they, you know, they would just park out in the cafeteria and in all the lobbies and, you know, other families would complain because there wasn't any place for them to, for their family to sit down or where they would go to the cafeteria and they couldn't find a place to set but we would we would accommodate for all those kind of differences while still trying to provide the best possible medical psychological you know care for these children but nowadays parents were you know i live in in california where ted hudako who's a, a dad out here who's been in a horrible custody battle he's lost visitation he hasn't seen his son I believe for two years. Can you tell this story? Just yes. And and Ted, if you're listening, forgive me if I get some of the details wrong. But you know, he basically is the father of two boys, and he and his wife. I don't remember the 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 timeline of when he and his ex wife separated and divorced, but somewhere during you know their time together, their one son, I believe it's their older son, started identifying as a girl. And Ted's ex-wife agreed, affirmed, said yes. Ted didn't agree, didn't affirm, didn't say yes. Um, he lost custody. His child was put on, you know, on uh, cross-sex hormones against his permission, not even asked. You know, he found out after the fact. Um, and he's, he has not, which is interesting, and he's, he often points it out, he's not lost custody of his other son. So he's not deemed an unfit father because if he was, he wouldn't be able to see either of his sons, but he's not able to see the one who's, you know, now identifying as a, as a young girl. And I sat in on a couple of the hearings during the pandemic because, and they were all on zoom. So you could easily just become a court watcher and, you know, and and log in and watch. And, you know, the judge opens the hearing by identifying himself with his pronouns. You know, everybody who works for the judge that's on the zoom call has their names and their pronouns after you think, well, the the fix is in here. He's not even going to get a fair hearing, you know, when he's up against people who open a hearing by saying, hi, I'm judge so-and-so and my pronouns are he, him, you know, and so it's really tragic. And, you know, in California, we're, 
you know, minutes away from becoming a sanctuary state. So other minor children from other states like Texas, like what perhaps DeSantis will do in Florida, you know, that have said this is not treatment, this is not care, you know, they'll be able to flee to California to get surgeries and in, in, in cross-sex hormones. But I think, you know, when you look at how we've shifted away from parents having the absolute authority, you know, certainly we would intervene in cases of abuse. But, you know, when it was just, it was a cultural thing, it was a religious thing, it was, you know, the, a family, this is the way our family does things, or this is the way our family doesn't do things. You know, back then, medicine would really try to accommodate all those and not be disrespectful and not try to take your kids away from you. Because a lot of a lot of this, you know, the undermining of parental authority is something I've studied and it's it's appalling when you watch how how it's unfolded, but it seems to have come from an idea of trying to prevent abuse happening. You, you you know what I mean that that and they kind of intervened and they they missed some dreadful cases of abuse, and so they keep on bringing in more and more policies, and then the policies get used against good good parents who really shouldn't be getting. I'm not convinced that is a, a anything except. Too many policies, not enough, um, not enough respect for the individual. I, I don't see that as anything to do with, unless I've missed something here. It's nothing to do with big farm and people making big money or anything. It's a slightly separate issue that has joined in a perfect storm with this issue. Yeah, I think it's just one added element to this perfect yeah. storm. Yeah, and we've lost our common sense. I hear I mean, you. Things that t- 10, 20 years ago, you would never think about chopping off a 14-year-old girl's breasts. You would never think about that. People would have thought you've lost your ever-loving mind. And now how quickly that's become, you know, standard of care. Yeah, it's like it's a weird overcorrection that has to do partially with, like, civil rights and LGBT politics and identity. It's a, a kind of a toxic empathy like something that is distorted which is very patient-led meeting requests of individuals regardless of if they're mentally well or if they can consent I mean there's so much wrapped up in this that is very complicated um is there anything from from your studies of well I'm curious about what the fertility preservation um, what knowledge you've amassed, like what can that tell us about gender medicine? Like, are there parallels there that maybe are underexplored or people aren't aware of, or like anything of value we can draw from one to the other? Um, well, I think a couple things come to mind. One is, uh, you know, back to what I said earlier on the, just the huge high failure rate of fertility medicine. You know, most embryos don't survive. Most embryos don't end in a live birth. Most embryos don't survive the freezing thawing process. Um, same as, you know, in the Silicon Valley where, where I live, you know, all the women now here that work for high tech, they're offering you know, fertility preservation to young women who work at Google and, you know, Facebook, you know, freeze and bank your eggs and save them for later, later and so you can have your babies when you're ready. Um, could I just come in there because of what you're saying there, and you're going on to another point which I am very interested in. Um, when you say most m- most of it ends in failure, you're saying the embryos end in failure, but most fertility treatments for the women end up in success. Yeah, and don't end with success. So, so we're offering children. So I'm I'm trying to make the connection to. So now we're telling young children before you change your sex. You know, again, I don't believe you can do that. But if you want to bank your eggs, bank your sperm, so that you can have your children later, there's a lot of just false hope. You know, what, they're given this. Is, what is the rate? What is the percentage? Because I thought it was fairly good. Now, obviously, I don't know anything about it. Well, so. I can just state. I can state U.S. data, and again, okay. we have very liberal laws around this, and so it's about twenty-five percent success rate. So for every 100 IVF cycles, 25% of them will end in a live birth. Okay, but a live birth by definition is a baby's born alive. That doesn't mean a minute after they're born, they die. They're still counted as a live birth. So of a 100 cycles, 25% of those will end in a live birth. 
So which means 75% of those cycles don't, they fail. And I've been tracking this data for 20 years. It's not, and you know, sometimes you get a little bit better rates if you use fresh eggs versus frozen eggs, or you use, if you're an older woman and you use a younger girl's eggs because your eggs are old, you know, so some of that is nuanced, but just kind of that's just a sort of a, a good frame for thinking that 75% of these cycles fail and 25. And it's very expensive. Oh my God, very you know, expensive. Like, like 100,000 and plus to go through a cycle of IVF. Can I ask a different stat question out of, like, let's say out of each 100 women that attempt to use IVF in order to have a baby, what percentage of those women will end up having a baby or more than one baby? Well, they're lumped into that figure I just gave you. So, so the CDC is where the data comes from. And the CDC publishes an annual report on all fertility clinics in the United States. And they are compelled to report. There's always some that don't, you know, and then they get in trouble because they didn't report their data. Um, you know, we can have a whole conversation about how they probably fudge their data because you want to show that you have really good success rates so people will come to your clinic, right? So they probably, you know, wink, wink, that didn't fail, but we don't have to count that one. You know, so, but, you know, but, and so they take all this data and this data that, it is a hundred to you know the twenty five percent figure includes women who use their own eggs, women who use their own eggs fresh means they came right out of their body. They you know they fertilized their fresh egg. Women who bank their eggs and put them in the freezer and then they came and got their frozen eggs and they use frozen eggs. Women who used egg donor eggs from younger women that were fresh or frozen. So all those kind of you know stratifications are in that data. And, and usually the CDC will break it down into like fresh, fresh eggs versus frozen because there's a lot of interest yeah. in do fresh eggs work better than the frozen ones because all these women are now banking and freezing their eggs. And it is a game because everybody wants you to do it, right? Because then they get money. Yeah, because I'm, I'm thinking about cycles and I'm thinking like let's say you have two women. One did one cycle and successfully got pregnant or successfully had a baby. And then the other woman maybe went through four or five cycles of IVF. Then proportionally speaking, it looks like out of every seven cycles, only one works. But like it's that woman perhaps was for some reason her eggs weren't as viable or something. So I guess that's why, because this is so foreign to me, I'm trying to figure out like not only number of cycles, but like in terms of the individual people seeking out these treatments. Um, yeah. And most women, when they go through one cycle, because it is very expensive and it's very rough on your body and we didn't even talk about the cancer risk and, you know, and, um, but one cycle, they'll get many eggs mm. in that one cycle and make many embryos okay. because you don't want to just go and take one egg and try it. And then you have to go back on the fertility drugs and then have the egg retrieval. And so they'll just take a bunch of eggs, make the embryos in that, but it's still okay, one cycle. Gotcha. Okay. And that's why most people who do IVFs, you know, they presume there's going to be a few goes because they're going to, there's yeah. going to be some failures. Yeah. And I don't think people have a major issue with that, that they accept that that's the rate and they accept that's the. Well, that's these are people that, you know, when we say most people, these are privileged people that either have insurance that covers this or they have the financial resources. You know, if you're a low income woman or an uninsured woman and you're struggling with fertility, there's, we don't offer anything to you. I mean, this is a, this is a private pay out of your pocket kind of, and even most insurances in the U S I think in Europe, it's different. They'll offer the, you know, the national health services will offer mm -hmm. a, a few cycles. They don't offer mm -hmm. unlimited. I think no. it's, and it's, and I think it's regulated too by the age of the woman because if a yes. woman is older, I think she gets one chance mm -hmm. um, because the high failure rate is even higher just as we age. It just happens. The reality yeah. of our biological clocks. Mm. And do you not think they should be offering it so easily? Do you think it's 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 problematic fundamentally? Well, I think we know it's problematic. It's it's not without health risk. I mean, there are cancer risks that are linked to fertility drugs. Um, you know, one study that I published in the medical literature with two of my colleagues, actually, it's not a study. It was a case, case report of five otherwise healthy young women who sold their eggs 
and went on as young women to be diagnosed with breast cancer. And there's a few things we know. We know that young women don't normally get breast cancer. It's a, it's a cancer that strikes us in our you know, 40s, 50s, 60s. And we know that egg donors are screened out if they have a history of cancer. Nobody wants to buy eggs from a woman who has a history of cancer, especially breast cancer. So these were women that were selected to sell their eggs with no history whatsoever of, of breast cancer. And we go, why is it that these five women... And the only thing they had in common was they took high-dose fertility drugs to become egg donors, um, went on as young women to develop breast cancer. We know that IVF can be rough on your own fertility. We're now seeing, because we've been at this long enough, we're seeing large studies of children created through assisted reproductive technology that have higher rates of certain genetic disorders. with wedemann syndrome is one that comes to mind. There's another one I'm blanking on. Um, there are certain heart defects, and we don't know if it's directly because of the assisted reproductive technology, but we're just seeing now that we have long, larger samples that the common theme is that these are children that were born through assisted reproductive technology. Obesity is one thing that we're seeing, children born of assisted reproductive. But again, we don't know, is, is it the mm-hmm. technique? Mm-hmm. Or is it there's some underlying fertility problem with this couple that was struggling to conceive because there was this problem? And that's sort of an evolutionary thing that we sort of ignored it and we we assisted them in conceiving when perhaps nature, evolution, whatever you think, maybe you didn't have this couple, you know, having fertility in their future. I tried to talk to Colin Wright about that. And he's like, it's not my area. And I'm like, but there's a lot of people in evolutionary biology that are really critical of assisted reproductive technology because we are messing with the normal evolutionary cycle and processes of how and who who conceives, you know, the survival of the fittest kind of thing. Are the um, medications, are they kind of hormones that impact our endocrine system? Or like, just for a layman's uh, explanation, like, how do these medications work? Yeah, well, let's talk about the egg donor, because I get exercise. Egg donors are always put on Lupron. And we go crazy when we find out about kids being put on Lupron. I mean, the first... uh, almost the first drug, if not the first drug, they're also oftentimes put on oral birth control pills, but they're put on Lupron because we're trying to, we're trying to put them into a medically induced menopause. We're trying to medically castrate them, medically quiet their ovaries from, from doing what the ovaries are to do, because we're trying to synchronize her mental cycle with the woman who's going to be receiving her eggs. So you've got this woman over here is going to be getting the eggs and they're on different cycles, right? And, you know, you ideally you want to time those. So they'll stop the egg donor cycle um, with Lupron. Um, oh. Then there's, she's, she's switched to, you know, some gonadotropins that put the ovaries into hyperdrive that, that force the ovaries to create lots and lots of egg, egg follicles and eggs. Um, and then she's put on uh, HCG, which is hormone, hormone chronic, gonadotropin, I just call it HCG, I forgot like the big name for it, um, which, uh, which allows the eggs to release from the follicles. So when they go in surgically to remove them, they're easy just to suck them all out. So similar drugs um, for different uses, but yeah, egg donors are put on loop. Sometimes surrogates are too, um, but, but not, not always because they're maybe not so concerned with, with the synchronization of the cycles because they can freeze the embryos or and it, it, have you an issue that the donors and the surrogates aren't aren't aware of the massive risks they're taking? No, and when we haven't done any of the studies. It's another dirty little secret. Same with children, because we what the what the studies we've done on these drugs on women have been in infertile women. So we know about these cancer risks in infertile women who take fertility drugs, like Gilda Radner. I'm old enough to remember Gilda Radner, the famous you know, comedian on Saturday Night Live. Most people don't realize Gilda Radner died of ovarian cancer. She was an infertile woman. She and Gene Wilder did, I think, six rounds of IVF and never, never got pregnant. I was on the phone yesterday with a, a doctor who's an affiliate with Segum. You guys know Segum. And she has a friend who did fertility um, IVF took fertility drugs. And a few months later, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And her oncologist said to her, I'm sure it's because of all the fertility drugs she took. But when we look at the egg donor, because she's not a patient, we've never done any studies on what happens when you put these healthy women who have no underlying fertility issue on these powerful drugs. Um, and, and that repeated effect. So when you look at the professional society, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, they recommend that a woman doesn't sell her eggs more than six times. 
but it's not based on any studies. It's not based on any data. It's just more, we don't want this woman to have 50 kids out there, you know, that are all from her. Kind of like what we see with sperm donors who find out that they've got 400 kids out there because they've just been given away their, their juice. So, but yeah, there's no study. So egg donors are told, you know, their informed consent is there's no risks. They need to be told there's no risk because we've never done the studies. So we don't know what the risks are. But in my film, Exploitation, two of the women took Lupron, had massive strokes. What did the FDA just slap Lupron with for uh, violation or warning for puberty blockers? Pressure, pressure on the eyes, pressure on the brain, pressure, pressure. What do you think a stroke is? So two of the women in my film, Exploitation, had massive strokes related to their Lupron. Both of those women were rendered infertile because of their massive strokes. And we know as women, what controls our menstrual cycle, our pituitary gland, which is in our brain. So when they had massive strokes, their pituitary gland. So one of the women laments in the film that she will forever have to take fertility medicine because her pituitary gland was destroyed with her stroke. Why do most women become donors? Money. I mean, the profile is college girls, a lot of debt. You know, and they're all over. My two, my two oldest daughters went to the University of California, Berkeley, and they used to come home with the Daily California, the school paper, and there would be ads for $100,000, $100,000 for an elite donor. You know, we want a really smart girl. really. So, and it's all, you know, it, the marketing is happy. I mean, look at the gender marketing. You see these smiley girls with their pink shirts on Planned Parenthood West, you know, get your testosterone here. Um, be an angel. Women are prone to being sympathetic for people who are struggling to have a baby. I'm not using my eggs now. Might as well help somebody else with them. I could sure use the money. I've heard this from some young people. I mean, young people who are considering maybe this would be an easy way to make extra money. And you know, I'm not, I'm not really well versed in this, but I know speaking with a couple of young trans men, their philosophy was like, well, I don't need these eggs anyway, so maybe I will donate or or sell them. And I'm curious about whether or not there is a push to encourage, quote, trans people to sell their eggs for that reason. I mean, th this is an interesting intersection that I never really clicked with me before until I heard you saying this, and I'm thinking about these conversations I've had. Yeah, I haven't heard if that has been an uptick and like, oh, okay, well, if you're going to transition to being a man and you don't want to preserve your fertility, can we just go in and rob you of all your eggs and sell them on the open market? I, I haven't heard that. I mean, part of me thinks with with the bad actors that we know are out there, I'm sure there would be some less, you know, less honorable people that might think that's a you know, a good way to, to go. I mean, just Google World Egg Bank. You know, there's one in Arizona. You know, they're trying to be the providers of eggs for the world. And just, you know, they have just bat, bats and bats and bats of eggs. Um, and the scientific researchers need eggs, right? So, um, so they can either, you know, sell their eggs to scientific research or sell their eggs for... What eggs future. did you say there are? You said that so how many embryos at the, at the beginning of this, you said... In the U.S., we have a million, over a million. We have more, you have more in the United Kingdom only because that's where Louise Brown was born, the first test tube baby. So the United Kingdom is where this whole test tube baby science happened um, with the two scientists, Watson, Steptoe, and, and I can't remember the other guy's name. Um, but, yeah, there's quite a few more in the United Kingdom. I think they have over two million in the United Kingdom. But... Um, Oh, wow. But yeah, these, these kids that are, they're being sold this, this is going to fix you. This is going to solve your problems. And oh, by the way, we can bank your fertility so that if you later think you want to have children, it's just a racket and it's just not good, proper, good medicine. You know, it's just a money grab. And ideally, what would you like these kids to be told? You, well, you know what I mean? I, you know, I, I loved it because, um, and Again, you know, when you interview people for films, you never rem you hear people saying it. And you're like, did that make it in the film? But I interviewed Paul Hughes in for transmission. And I and remember he said this and it really hit me. And I think it didn't make it into the film. But he basically said and I thought that's brilliant. It's so true. We have so much else to offer these children. 
right? It's not like we either have to block their puberty, put them on hormones and, and race them off to the sexual, you know, reassignment surgeon, or, or they're going to kill themselves, right? That's what, that's what the, the, the people that we're fighting like you to say, we either have to do all this or they're going to die. And he was just like, there is so much medicine can offer these children, whether it be good psychological counseling, therapy, family counseling, you know, if I don't know if you ha- you guys have children or not, I, I've raised four, um, you know, find out what's going on in the home, find out what's going on in the school, find out what's going on in the community, what's, there's this holistic approach to what is going on with this particular child. And it's not a one size fits all. This might be a child who's just awkward. You know, this might be a child who's being bullied at school. And we're, we're just as I had a, my oldest daughter was bullied at school. And I didn't find out for like several years later that she had been bullied because she just didn't come home and let on, you know, and, and the teacher was the bullier. You know? oh. <laughs> and so the teacher, of course, didn't let on that my daughter was being bullied in school because she was the one that was doing the bullying. You know, so there's just so much we can offer these children you know, what's going on with the marriage in, in this child's life? You know, their parents, you know, is this a, is this a, an abusive home? Whatever. I, I mean, I'm not saying that these children that are struggling are in abusive homes, but there's so much else that we can try to figure out and, and, and offer these children. And it was Cruz that sort of ha- turned that light bulb. I'm like, it's not, an, it's either this or that. There's so much that, that we have in our toolbox. That's a really hopeful way to, to wrap up our conversation, because I think there is so much we can offer. And we're really grateful for you coming on the program and for talking to us about your films and your interests. It's been really fascinating and illuminating. So thank you, Jennifer. Oh, I've I've had a really good time. And I'm so happy to finally get to talk with you guys. I've admired you both from afar for so long. I feel like I'm a little fangirl (laughs) getting to be with the my my fa- my um, my starlet. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. kind. Likewise, <laughs> thanks, Jennifer. Take care. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender: A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron. You'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.